Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 24. I know how hard it is for some people not to hear the end of a story, so I want to let you know, and I, I also know there's been some skepticism about my ability to finish some things, and so uh, I want you to let you know that the project I've referenced a few times in my sermons actually got finished. My TV stand, uh, cabinet thing, whatever you want to call it there, and uh, uh, I love the process of woodworking. Uh, maybe that's why it takes me so long to make things. Um, for me, it takes a lot of careful forethought. Um, maybe if I use the paper and pencil more, it would go better. I'm not sure, but many careful steps, a great deal of patience on this project, the drawers. Drawers are always really hard for me to get them just right so they go in and out and look proper. I love the process, and I enjoy each milestone of progress, but the goal is always to create something useful. The goal is not just to use the table saw, as fun as that is. God tells us that Jesus endured some things, and he despised some things in the process of going through his death, burial, and resurrection. He despised some things and endured some things because there was some good things coming. He saw the good that was coming from his project. He endured much difficulty in coming to earth and in living through his whole life and the events of the crucifixion. But on this day, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus got to the good part of his project. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And we want to read about the beginning of that good part of his project in Luke chapter 24. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed. I should tell you something, that as much as Jesus talked to them and talked to them about death, burial, and resurrection, that they didn't get it. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in the shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, angels are created beings. They're not all-knowing. And so they're looking at these women going, what's wrong with you? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying... The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And then, if I could insert one word, and then they remembered his words. 
Then they remembered his words. The resurrection of Christ is as we have read here, as we have read elsewhere. He told the disciples about this ahead of time. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Why did Jesus tell them about the resurrection ahead of time? It was for the same reason that he told his enemies about the resurrection. This is an interchange between Jesus and those who hated him. Now, Jesus didn't have enemies in the sense of him hating others, but others hated him. And this is one of those interchanges. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now these people were, old, were, were from the Jewish religion. And if you go back in the Old Testament, you would see part of God's uh, instruction to his people involved men who called themselves prophets. And the instruction went like this. If a man comes to you and says he has a word from God, that's what a prophet is. He says, God has told me something, and I'm supposed to tell you. That's a prophet. He says, if a man comes and says he has a word from God, then you should say, what is your sign? The word sign means it's something that points to the truth that he is from God. And so it would have been a miracle with the purpose of verifying who he was. Jesus didn't do miracles just to make people feel good. And the Old Testament prophets didn't do miracles to make people feel good. They did them as an evidence that they truly were from God. And so these Old Testament believers, and I'll call them, you know, it's before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, so we'll call them Old Testament believers. They came and said, show us your sign. In other words, prove what you've been saying. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Elsewhere, Jesus said things like this to people. Listen, you have the scriptures. They talk about me. That should be enough. These people knew the scripture, but they refused to acknowledge it. And so Jesus was angry with them because of their, they were callously unbelieving before they asked the question. They were skeptics, as in trying to prove him wrong, not trying to prove him right. And so he said, you are an evil and adulterous generation, but I'm still going to give you a sign. And it's the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now these folks got the message because they're the ones who came to Pilate and said to him, as Chet referenced earlier, now this guy said he's only going to be dead a little while and then come back, and we don't want him fooling people. And because we don't want him to fool people, will you, the Roman governor, the guy with the swords and the spears, will you send some troops to guard the tomb because we don't want his, his, his followers to steal the body and then say, Jesus is raised from the dead. So they understood this clearly. If it's a little fuzzy to you, it wasn't fuzzy to them. He said, I'm going to be there only three days and three nights. And so the resurrection was the greatest proof of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah of Israel. The word Messiah means Savior, it means Deliverer, 
in, in, in terms of, of the Old Testament, it meant the whole package of spiritual, physical, social, political deliverance that will come someday for Israel. At the time when Jesus came, he was only accomplishing the spiritual deliverance. The resurrection is the greatest proof. Everything else Jesus did was also a proof of his identity. Um, all the miracles that he did. At the time when he told this to the disciples, though, when he said, I'm going to, to die and then be raised again, they, couldn't, they didn't grasp his meaning, especially the meaning of the words when he said, this must happen. This must happen. Why must it happen? It must happen because it was God's plan, and God even spoke about it in the Old Testament. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in the place of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That is the, 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 the ruin, the, the corruption that comes to a person's body who has died. The author of this prayer was King David. It was a prayer that King David prayed about himself. He anticipated his own resurrection someday, as all believers will, but David was also speaking about Christ. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, all of this was written in the Old Testament, and it had to have happened. The Old Testament did speak about the resurrection of Christ, and so Jesus said, this is the ultimate proof of who I am. And then Jesus reminds them that the resurrection had to happen in order for him to prove he was the one sent by God. The resurrection was and still is the greatest proof of Jesus' identity. The uh, largest, I think it's the largest church that calls itself a Christian church in the world, the Catholic Church, attributes miracles to every person who is made into a saint. When a pope dies in particular, they look, they actively look for things that have happened that can be attributed to their ministry as, uh, uh, as of saying, this person did a miracle. Somebody prayed to this person and a miracle happened. And, and uh, they, they did it with the last pope and uh, they've done it with others, obviously, like Mother Teresa. And uh, I, I have no idea about the validity of those things but I'm just telling you that there are other religious people who claim to do miracles. Whether real or not, I don't know, but that's, that's not an uncommon claim. But I don't know anybody else who's claimed to have ever been raised from the dead. No other religious leader, not Muhammad, okay? Not... Not anybody that I can think of who, who is part of any significant organization never raised from the dead. Now remember, as Chet referenced also this morning, Jesus is a historical figure. There is, there is as much historical fact to, to identify that he was a real living person in a real place as there are any other ancient person. If you would say, I know this person or that person lived in history, then you must also say that Jesus lived in history because the way that we know about them both is the same way historically from the documents that exist. And remember that his haters were men of great power 
who would have danced on his grave if they could have. And if they had kept him in the grave, they would still be dancing on the grave. But they couldn't keep him in the grave. And it, it makes me think of a, of a great song that goes like this. So finally, upon a rugged cross, they killed the man who would not suffer loss. And when at last they took what willingly he gave, he died, but could they keep him in the grave? They could not, they could not, though they tried, they could not. And when at last they took from him, what willingly he gave. Could they keep him in the grave? Could they keep him in the grave? Could they keep him in the grave? They could not. Now you can choose to believe that all of that was made up. But I'm telling you, it's just as historical as any other fact you want to look back on. So the resurrection is a real thing, and it was the accomplishment of Christ's defining of who he is, not just in terms of I am true, but in terms of I have conquered every force of evil in the world. Sin, death, hell, and the grave are conquered by Christ. How sweet the resurrection must have been to Jesus. Have you ever thought about what it would feel like for him to, he dies on the cross, he goes in the tomb, and remember he's God and yet he's man together and he's waiting for that moment when the other scripture says God raised him up and he stands up whole and the angels roll the stone away not because he couldn't do it and he walks out and he thinks let's get to work man that must have been a sweet day that must have been a sweet as opposite a day as, as the hard days were before. What a marvelous thing. And, and as sweet as it might have been for him personally, it's really sweet for him because of what he's going to do for us. Look at verses 9 through 11. Uh, we're following the story along. They've seen, they've heard that the Christ has been resurrected, verse 9. Then they returned from the tomb, and they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. In other words, not just the 11 apostles, you know, minus Judas, of course, but all of the believers who were around them. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, 
Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. (laughs) They looked at him and said, are you out of your mind? Idle tales. In other words, you guys were out somewhere and decided to make this up. You, you, you didn't sleep very good last night. When you woke up, you dreamed that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. Somehow, it just, just didn't work. So look at verse 12. At least Peter had the wisdom and courage to go check it out for himself. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, the, the burial cloths. And he departed, marveling to himself at what he had seen. I can imagine if you're Peter, after letting the Lord down during the trial phase of things, you're thinking, oh, I hope he's resurrected. I hope that I'm not the one who caused him to be put to death. Jesus knew how hard it was going to be for the disciples to fully grasp who he was, so he carried out a set of carefully constructed interactions with them that would result in their genuine understanding and belief. God knows who we are. There's a scripture that says, God knows that we're made of dust. That's that's a God way to say, he knows that he is way up here and all-knowing, and we're just, we're nothing down here. And so he understands that, and he works with us on that basis. Let's follow the story a little farther at verse 13. Now behold... Two of them, two of the disciples, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things. They've just been through what we call the Holy Week or the Passion Week, they, and they'd come for the Passover, and all this stuff had happened, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, verse 15, while they conversed and reasoned, They're trying to figure things out according to the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. You know, we, we, you know, here in Ferndale, if you're walking down the sidewalk and somebody comes up and starts walking with you, you think, well, I'm going to walk a little faster. (laughs) Think, what's he want? That happened to me yesterday. I was going, or yesterday, the day before, I'm walking across somewhere, and there's a woman walking, and I'm kind of like cutting right court toward her, and she, she's kind of going like this, you know. <laughs> but in that day, it was like, hey, come on and join us, you know. We, we got seven miles to go. Let's have a conversation. <sighs> Jesus himself drew near, verse 15. In verse 16, but their eyes were restrained. God God didn't want them to really grasp it just yet so that they did not know him. And Jesus said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you're having with one another? It must have been heated. It must have been full of scripture. It must have, you know, something unique about it. What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of those named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you, (laughs) let me put it in our vernacular, What rock did you just crawl out from under? Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? 
So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping that he was that prophesied Messiah, the Savior from the Old Testament, who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today's the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They saw the empty tomb, but that wasn't enough because they're thinking somebody could have stolen his body. They're thinking maybe I had the wrong tomb. Him they did not see. Then verse 25, then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you think Pastor Dave's sermons are long, of course, they had seven miles to walk. What's interesting about this Jesus teaching them at great length is we don't have any record of that teaching. Okay? There's no, there's no place where that is like highlighted or summarized or, or, uh, or put together. But we follow it along just a little further. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, verse 28, and he indicated he was going to walk on. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, no doubt similar to our Lord's Supper. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road? And, and while he opened the scriptures to us. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told the things that happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Wow. We don't have a record of those teaching, but we have these two guys running to Jerusalem. Remember, they just walked seven miles to get home. <laughs> Some of you can run seven miles, not this guy. They must have been young men, and they ran back, and no doubt they shared as much as they could remember. But look what happens next. Verse 30, look, go back to verse 35. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them and the breaking of the bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you. You know what I call that? A dramatic entrance. Wow. Boom. There he is. Jesus knew it would be hard for the disciples to understand so he designed this whole process of revealing himself 
in such a way that people would, would be able to grasp what was going on. And look how it goes on, verse 37. But they were terrified and frightened, and they supposed they'd seen a spirit. They still don't get it. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me, see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy, they're so excited, they just said, I I just don't know if it's true. While they still did not believe for joy, and while they marveled, he said to them, Do you have any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Jesus revealed himself in the ways that would be most instructive and strengthening to the disciples. He helped them to understand who he was. And they got it at this point. But that's not the end of the story. I'm calling this the rest. There is the resurrection. There is the revealing of himself. And this isn't all of his revealing. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 15 that he revealed himself to over 500 brethren at one time. I don't know if that was this time or some other time. This isn't all of the revealing, but it's part of it. But what about the rest? Look at verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. He said, Look, all this stuff was written in the Old Testament. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. There is a difference between reading and comprehension. Those of you who who are in school, who have gotten those grades, understand that. The testing can can see, do you know the words or do you really understand the meaning? And they had heard the words and they, they took them at face value, but now, now they comprehend. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend. Jesus supernaturally opened their understanding and set in motion the completion of their transformation. Let's follow it on. Verse 46. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but I want you to wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are given power from on high. In the Old Testament era, sins were not taken away from a person. They were put on hold. The Old Testament word atonement literally means to cover. And when a person would come in faith, and offer that animal sacrifice and and sincerely have faith in God and sincerely be admitting their sin, God covered their sin and did not hold it against them so that when they died, they were able to go to uh, paradise. 
All of those sacrifices looked forward to the day when Jesus would come and he would die on the cross and offer the perfect sacrifice. When he died and was buried and rose again, conquering sin, then sin can be removed from an individual. We don't, we don't pay for our own sin and we don't hang on to our sin. God removes it from us. The resurrection completed the work of salvation. And until that was accomplished, sin could not be removed. And until sin, cannot be, until sin could be removed, the Holy Spirit could not come in and do his marvelous work. The resurrection completed the work of salvation. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ finished the work of salvation. Now he's able to go to his disciples and give them the full, uh, the full transformation that he had always intended for them. And that centers around the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about God, we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you believe in Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into you and gives you several transformations. The first is this, the ability to understand God's truth. As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. Some of you today are listening to me thinking... I don't get it. You're like the disciples. Um, the disciples heard Jesus' words, and they kept, they either said, I don't get it, like Thomas said to Jesus, when Jesus said, um, I'm going to go to heaven, and you're going to come be with me, and you know how to get there, and Thomas went, we don't know how to get there. And you're thinking, you've been with Jesus all this time, and you still don't get it? If you would say today, you know, I read the Bible, but I don't get it. I would offer this explanation to you. Until you come to true faith in Christ as the Savior, the Holy Spirit is not in you helping you understand. But if you are in Christ, you have his help, you have his ministry, what a great privilege for us to read God's word and to understand it and to be transformed by it. The second ministry of the Holy Spirit that Christ was eager to give to us is the confidence of relationship with God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out Abba or Daddy, Father, a close, close father-child relationship. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I've talked about this before, and I'll talk about it again. This is one of the greatest blessings of knowing Christ, of believing in Christ as Savior. It's knowing down in your soul, I am a child of God. It's not the same as saying, well, I just think everybody's a child of God. Well, that's, you're welcome to have any thoughts you want. The question I would ask you is, when you're alone with yourself in the dark and you look down inside, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is your Father, Christ is your Savior, and that you are His child walking with Him? Is there that confidence? Do you know we don't get that confidence from ourselves? 
I am nothing special. I am simply a child of God. I have that confidence because God has put it in me. What a wonderful blessing Christ was eager to give to us. Number three, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to be transformed, to be changed, to to grow. One of the things that I'll be talking about at the men's retreat this weekend down at Camp Gilead is is about whether or not you are a full-grown adolescent. Let me make that clearer. There are people in the world who are full-grown seventh graders. Now, if you're a seventh grader here today, Lord bless you. There's nothing wrong with you that a few years won't fix. (laughs) But if you are 35 living like a seventh grader that's a problem and someday you'll figure out that it's a problem for you right now it's just a problem for everybody around you how do people change and grow a lot of people in the world don't believe it's possible people don't change that's the statement well you know so-and-so they're just that way there's no hope for becoming a better person. Well, I want to tell you today, there is complete hope in Christ. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing and regeneration, new birth, and the making new that is done by the Holy Spirit. No matter what the challenge is in your person, no matter what the hurdle is you're trying to get over, the power is available there in Christ. The kind of life that, if you, if you, if you would ask me today, Pastor Dave, what, what does it mean to be transformed? It means that you are growing into this kind of a person. The fruit of the Spirit or the result of the Spirit being in a person's life is love, joy, peace, Long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that God wants to build in us, and the Holy Spirit is working to build in us, but it cannot happen until you are a believer in Christ who has the Spirit of God put in him. The fourth thing that Christ wants to give us, and he does through the Holy Spirit, is the protection the protection of our eternal life. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a lawyer, a defender with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You might ask the question, why do I need, why does my spiritual life need to be defended? Well, the answer comes First of all, from Romans chapter 12, which is about a time period that is yet future, and yet the identity of people there is an ongoing thing in our time period. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. Who is the accuser of the brethren? It is Satan himself. You say, well, what does he have to accuse us about? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't live a perfect Christian life. 
And so when we stumble and when we sin, as believers in Christ, the devil says, do you see that, God? Do you see how Dave Lunsford lived today? He does not deserve to be your child. He does not deserve the blessings that you are giving him. And, and when he does that, you know what Jesus does? Jesus steps up and says, he's covered under my blood. I have forgiven his sins, and he is growing in me. You leave him alone. Boy, that's the kind of lawyer that I want. When Jesus, or when Satan accuses us, Jesus steps in. And, he, and we read this about Jesus. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, Jesus, continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the extreme forever, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Now, we see the word intercession in the New Testament as a word that refers to prayer, and this may be referring to prayer, but it could also be just referring to him stepping in between the devil and that accusation made to God and him saying no, and he intercedes for us. That's the kind of lawyer that I want. I am not going to heaven. I am not certain that I am going to heaven because I, am a, because I have a great faith in God. I am going to heaven because God has such a great claim on me that Jesus will not let anything ruin my spiritual life. There's another blessing that Christ gives to us personally, and that is the preparation of our heavenly home. John 14 says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, better translated, a, a place to live. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is preparing a heavenly home for us. Just as certain as his resurrection is our heavenly home. Now... <clears throat> We've been talking about the blessings that God gives us. I'd like you to turn your attention just for a minute the opposite direction and think about Jesus and the joy that these blessings gave to him in that he was able to give them to us. And we go to that theme verse, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of Jesus was the blessing that he would be able to bring to believers after the cross. He despised the shame of the experience of the cross. He endured the pain of the cross because of all that it would accomplish for us. Jesus was happy. Jesus was happy to give us these blessings, but he doesn't give them to all people. In this text where Jesus is talking about preparing a place for us in heaven, he puts the limit 
on who can have these blessings. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The blessings of the risen Savior come only to those who hear his words and believe in him and his message wholeheartedly. The resurrection of Christ is not an inspiring story meant to cause people to rise up and live a better life of some sort. It is the record of Christ making it possible for our sins to be forgiven so we can have a godly life now and heaven in the future. And so I ask you today, where are you at with the Savior? If Jesus were here and said, made that into a positive statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you may come to the Father through me. Where would you be with that statement? Do you understand that he says you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself until you are a believer in Christ? You are a sinner. Do you understand that he is a divine person who took on human flesh and gave his life to satisfy God the Father's claim because of sin? Do you understand that only God asks one thing of you, and that is faith in this truth? And have you come to a point in life where you understood these facts and expressed your faith to God? Let's bow our heads in prayer. I'm, I just want to ask you today to, to take a little internal inventory and find out where you see yourself in relation to Christ. Is he the one way to heaven that you have believed in wholeheartedly and, and thus you are confident that you are God's child today? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to everyone who is here. I pray that you would open hearts and minds, help them to understand your truth. We know that even coming to Christ requires your work to open minds and souls. And I pray that you would do that today. I pray that you would cause people to see where they're at in their relationship with you. And more than that, I pray that you would cause them to step across the line in full faith in Jesus as their Savior. For those of you who have believed in Christ as your Savior, as we continue to pray, I would just ask you this question. Have you ever publicly declared your faith in Christ? Do people know you are a believer in Christ? And that starts with baptism. That starts with you saying, I am going to stand up for Christ because he stood up for me. I will tell people I am a believer. If you've never been baptized, you need to do it to follow Christ, to obey him, to show your belief in him. And for those of you who have believed and have been baptized, are you living a life that says thank you? Thank you for these great blessings that I enjoy every day.
Heavenly Father, speak to hearts today. You know what each person here needs to do, what they need to believe, where they need to change. Will you speak to hearts today? Will you do your work today? I pray in Christ's name, amen.